And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots, and to be his horsemen, and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground, and to reap his harvest, and to make his implements of war, and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all of the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. Let's pray. Father, your word is magnificent. And in it is the power of life. And there are times where your word is difficult and hard to wrestle with. And as we endeavor to wrestle with your word this morning, I pray that you would grant us success and help us to understand. Let this time not be in vain, but may we indeed know you, know your ways, understand your heart, and that our hearts would beat with yours. Let's do these things through your word this morning, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in Israel's long and ancient history, David was by far the greatest king that they ever had. He was a warrior, he was a worship leader, he was a prophet, he was a prefigurement of the promised Messiah. And David was emotional and flawed and suffered terrible wounds of spirit. His soul is laid bare for us in the more than 70 psalms that he authored. And there in those psalms, we see him soaring with joy and we see him wrestling in the pit of despair and virtually everything in between. But perhaps the greatest thing that can be said about King David 
is that he was a man after God's own heart. And as such, God established with David an everlasting covenant. We call it the Davidic covenant. It was God's promise that that David would have a descendant who would reign on David's throne forever. And the son of David, he was called the anointed one, the Messiah. But today we are not really going to talk about David. First we need to, to set the scene and to see the things that led to a king in Israel. How was it that a king came to reign in Israel? So that's my goal today. I want to set the context. I want to explore how a king came to rule over Israel. And then, as we look at these things, we're going to see a very... We're going to see a snake in the garden. The danger of pragmatism. So be on the lookout for pragmatism. To properly set the context, though, even of this chapter, we need to briefly return to the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron the Hittite. In that cave, as we saw last week, the bones of Abraham and Sarah were laid to rest. And though these The covenant father, the the man of covenant, had died. The man who was counted righteous because of faith, though he had died, the covenant keeper had not. For God continued to hold covenant relationship with Abraham's descendants through the families of Isaac and then later Jacob. And 400 years then passed. And it was God's covenant faithfulness to these patriarchs that compelled him to free Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's descendants from their bondage, from their slavery in Egypt. Now by then, the covenant family had grown. Not a family anymore, but now a small nation. And so God gave Israel another covenant, a covenant of law, 613 commands to help them see how now as a nation they can live in right relationship with God, how they are to hold, possess covenant with God now that they are millions. The covenant of law, which we also call the Mosaic covenant, it made it abundantly clear how they were to do, how they were to do this. Israel was God's treasured possession, his beloved. And he would make this little nation a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. You see that in Exodus 19. And in response, Israel was to love God with all of their heart, with all of their soul, with all of their might, and to love one another. And these two commands sum up all the others. This is how they were to conduct themselves. In Deuteronomy 9.7, God says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Such love would bind his people together. Yahweh would be their king, and they would be governed by the law of love. 
Eventually, after Moses' death, Joshua would lead Israel into the promised land, and they would, the, the very promised land that God promised to Abraham. They would move through the land, and they would conquer the Canaanites, and God told them to expel the Canaanites from the land, but they didn't. It didn't complete the job. They let some of the Canaanites remain and pollute the land with their abhorrent paganism. Sadly, it didn't take long for Israel to break covenant with Yahweh and worship these foreign and false gods. And so Yahweh would allow Israel to become oppressed by those same pagan nations, the ones they failed to drive out. Eventually, that oppression became so bad that the people would cry out to God for deliverance, save us, Lord. And so God raised up judges. Judges were something like warrior prophets. And they would defeat Israel's foes and they would lead the people in repentance, bringing them back to God. And indeed, they would return to God. And it was good for a while. But eventually, that particular judge would die. The next generation of Israelites would forget. And they would fall into the same idolatrous trap. And again, Israel would be oppressed by the surrounding nations. And again, they would cry out. And so God would raise up another judge. And this cycle went on repeat over and over and over again for about 300 years. The very last of these God-appointed judges was Samuel. Samuel was one of the great judges, more prophet than warrior. But Samuel's story really kicks off when he's an old man, much like a man that we recently were studying. Look at verses 1 through 3 again in Samuel chapter 8. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second son, Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. I'm not sure at what age Samuel became old. I think we're all still trying to figure out what is that number that makes you old. Whatever it is, I I hope I'm not there yet. But Samuel had passed that number. Remember how God appointed, or remember that God appointed the judges of Israel? He was the one who raised them up in response to the people crying out. But God did not appoint Joel and Abijah. Samuel appointed his sons, which is a bad case of nepotism. His sons were corrupt. Their judgment stank of injustice, and they were the exact opposite of what the judges of Israel were to be. And so it clearly repulses the people of Israel. They don't want these men as judges over them. We don't want judges who are unjust in our day. Sadly, we have many. So Samuel... In his arrogance and in his nepotism, he's at least partially responsible for everything else that happens in chapter 8. So what happens? Verse 4. 
Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. So they're sick of Samuel's sons, rightly so. They're terrible judges. But it isn't Israel that comes to make this request. Israel, like all the people of Israel, the whole congregation, it's the elders of Israel. They were the elites. They were the landowners and the wealthy class. They are the ones who have the significant influence in Israel. And you're going to see the importance of that detail as we continue. But the elders of Israel, they go to Ramah, which is about five miles north of Jerusalem. It's where Samuel's home was. And they effectively are trying to bring Samuel out of retirement. It's like a classic Hollywood trope. The old experienced expert brought back for one final job. And the final job that the elders have for Samuel is to appoint for them a king. I want you to notice, I want you to see the three reasons that's motivating the elders for a king. One, Samuel is old, so he might be good for one last job, but he's certainly not a viable candidate to continue judging all of Israel. Two, Samuel's sons are nothing like Samuel, and they don't want to be led by such corrupt men. And then three, They want to be like the nations that surround them. Do you see which one of these three is the problem? They want to be like the nations. In what way do they want to be like the nations? How does a king make them like the nations? We learn in verse 20. They want a king... He's going to go before them and fight their battles, which is what all the other nations have. doesn't necessarily mean that the king is on the front lines, but the king is the one who consolidates power to make a military. You see, in the time of the judges, Israel functioned more like a militia than a military. They were very tribal. You know, think of Gideon and his army of volunteers. Whoever took up the call would come to battle. But those 12 tribes were often not unified, and the judges is a story of that. They might not all recognize God, God's appointed judge. All the tribes did not recognize Gideon right away, even after his great victory. The tribes might disagree over a military strategy. We see that happen in Judges chapter 12. They disagree on a whole host of enemies. And it's not uncommon for these different tribes to begin fighting one another. And in Judges chapter 20, 11 tribes attack the tribe of Benjamin. Because Benjamin did some stupid things. So it was a mess. And like we see in the New Testament, Jesus says, A house divided cannot stand. But a king, a king in Israel, that would unify Israel, that bring the tribes together. A king would be able to create a true military. Israel would not be so vulnerable. A king would make Israel strong and secure and formidable. A king was a very pragmatic solution to this old-fashioned tribalism in Israel. Additionally, Kings had a way of making the wealthy class 
wealthier. Like the elders speaking to Samuel, perhaps there's a bit of self-interest in their request. And indeed, if you look down at the warnings, he says in verse 15, he will take a tenth of your grain and your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants, meaning he's going to take from all of the land and give it to his nobles or to the elders. They have something to gain. But this idea of a king is a fundamental change to the structure of Israel. And the request for a king creates a significant tension now. A tension that becomes apparent when we see Samuel immediately disapproving of this. And yet, God consents. Look at this in verse 6. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. You know, since Sinai, was that no human being ruled over them, but Yahweh was king. From Sinai, God spoke these words. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Before Israel was, God had chosen her. In the womb of Egypt, he incubated and grew her. Through the exodus, he birthed his chosen nation, and he covenanted to love Israel, to be her king. And he promised to make her a holy kingdom of priests where none of them would have to vie for royalty, but they would all be royal. And in return, Israel was to be faithful to him, to love him, to trust him. Israel and her king, bound together by love. What a beautiful picture. And when danger would arise, as it often arose, Yahweh himself would go out and fight those battles. As Moses said, fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. But in God's glorious position, the elders wanted to insert a man, the king of glory, for one of dust. As God said to Samuel, it was a continuation of a long pattern of Israel's rejection, and a pattern that would continue well beyond this point, for later the prophet Jeremiah would write with God's voice, 
My people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. No wonder Samuel was so displeased. He was appalled. He rightly understood that Israel was forsaking the glory of her God for that which does not profit. And yet, amazingly, with abounding patience and grace, God does not condemn Israel or refuse her desires. He allows Israel to have what she wants. He effectively says to Samuel, give them what they want. If that's what they want, give it to them. And right there is this gigantic paradox. Apparently, for behind this text, Behind this concession is a fulfillment of something that Yahweh had always been planning. He wanted Israel to have a human king. Remember God's promise to Sarah? He said, I will bless her and she shall become nations and kings of people shall come from her. Or how about more words that God spoke through Moses? When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it, and you dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. Sounds so much like the request the elders made, doesn't it? Yet there's one subtle difference. One snake in the garden. We'll get to that. Even at the beginning of 1 Samuel, this book, there's a prophetic hint of a king. Samuel 2.10. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. So can you see the paradox? Two contradictory things appearing simultaneously true. Israel demands a human king, and it's a rejection of Yahweh, and that's wrong. That's bad. Be appalled, O heavens. And yet Yahweh wills that Israel have a human king. Therefore, a king is a good thing. This is why when God answers Samuel, God neither endorses a king nor denies a king. Just merely allows. He does not support Samuel. He doesn't give Samuel what he wants. He doesn't support the elders. He doesn't approve of what they want. But God is guided only by the counsel of his own will. Even still, God commands Samuel warn the elders, warn them. They will be forewarned how much their decision will cost them. And when it comes time to pay that price, they will not be able to come complaining to God. 
Let's read the warning, starting in verse 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king, who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots, and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and he will give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, I'll stop there. price for a king is steep. Six times we see that phrase, he will take. The king will take sons to war and daughters to servitude. He will take a tenth of all of their goods and all the promised land will be under his control. He will take Wealth will now flow from the common people and concentrate around the king. And what God intended to be shared among all the people, an overflowing land with milk and honey. God had rescued Israel out of the slavery of Egypt. Now Israel willingly plunges herself into a bondage of her own making. Like Samuel says in verse 17, you shall be his slaves. And then comes the word that should have struck fear into those elders' hearts and turned them away. It should have. Verse 18. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. From Abraham all the way up into this moment, the pattern had always been When there was a need, the covenant people would cry out and God would provide. God would provide. Whether it was a time of war or a time of hunger or a time of thirst or any other need, God would provide. He loved to provide and he never failed to provide. In fact, the very chapter before this one, Israel cries out from deliverance of a Philistine threat and God delivered. How short was Israel's memory? How short is our memory? How much they forsook. How much they forfeit as they forsook Yahweh. If they had fully embraced the covenant, then they would never have known need. Read in Isaiah 65, Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. But even after all these warnings, still they want a king. Still they choose bondage. They know better than God. But the people refuse to obey the voice of Samuel. 
And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may also be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go, every man to a city. It's sad. Israel doesn't want to be set apart. They don't want to be different. They don't want to be peculiar. They don't want to be holy. They want to be like all the other nations. They want the security and the power and the comfort of a king. And even though the people do not listen to Samuel, and therefore they do not listen to God, God listens to them. God says, obey your voice, obey their voice, make for them a king. It's revealing that God is the one who really does have the power here. Most fundamentally, we see that it is God who takes the initiative to appoint a king. He's the one that's going to make it happen. He does not approve, but he does authorize Even as Samuel receives these words from the elders, you get the sense that he, or these words from God and from the elders, I suppose, you get the sense that he understands Israel has just lost something that is most precious, most precious element of its identity and life. A holy nation, a holy nation governed by their love for Yahweh, living under the blessing of his sovereign reign. Now it all just seems dashed. And so with stark suddenness, so abruptly, without even communicating to the elders what God had spoken, Samuel just sends everyone away. He doesn't want to tell them that God's going to appoint a king. Get out of here. Go home. I think it's very clear. He's frustrated. And then the narrative ends. Paradox is not resolved, and we are left wrestling with what just happened. Much like I think Samuel was. What are you doing? And the text doesn't answer it. Not here or anywhere else. Not in any direct sense. And so it causes us to wrestle. God wants us to wrestle with his word. You cannot just read this and walk away and think you've gotten something. He wants us to wrestle with it. So let us wrestle. For there are clues, many of which I've touched on. Clues that help us understand God's motivations and bring harmony to this paradox And mind you, we we can bring some resolution to the paradox, but we will not be able to remove all of the tensions. There are tensions that exist still, and they're good for us. Remember what we read earlier from Deuteronomy 17. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, 
and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set over you as king. So according to the law, which we just read, God made allowance for Israel to appoint a king. Like the other nations had kings. Because he knew that at some point, Israel would need an earthly king to unify them, to lead them. More than that, God's appointed king, he would lead Israel in covenant faithfulness. God's anointed would help Israel be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests unto Yahweh. That's what God's anointed would do. He would be a king not marked not by how much he takes, but by how much he gives. But when we come to 1 Samuel 1 or 1 Samuel 8, there's this critical difference. It's a difference of motivation. You see, the elders wanted a king to go before them and fight their battles. That's what we saw in verse 20. And formerly, it was God who did that. God went before Israel with his legs like pillars of fire and smoke, and he was the one who defeated Israel's foes. What greater king is there? That was a long time ago. It was a long time since they had seen God. And where could they go to find God? They cannot see him. Well, what are the nations going to think? They're going to see a strange people with an unprovable God, and at best they will mock, and at worst they will attack. A mighty king, though, that's a little more practical. Far more efficient, more visible. We can make our own security here. And Israel was demanding a king because it felt more secure and more pragmatic than this waiting on the Lord business. Pragmatic? That means finding the fastest, easiest path to security and success. This whole scene, the elders are nothing if not pragmatic. God desired a king. God was planning for a king. Before the foundations of the world were laid, he was planning for a king to reign in Israel, but not like this. Relationship is hard, and it is slow. Relationship with God is we all know is sometimes very difficult to understand and navigate. The elders of Israel didn't want to bother with all of that. So when Samuel eventually appoints Saul as Israel's first king, Israel's going to find out just how heavy the cost of their pragmatic motivations. And though these motivations clearly sadden God, having been forsaken yet again, God does not rage and he does not retaliate. He is patient and meek and gracious and he gives to them what it is that they want because he has a plan. He plans to raise out of their evil motivations a man after his own heart. 
plans to raise his anointed. Next week, we're going to see Samuel go to Bethlehem and find a lowly shepherd boy and name him as God's chosen king. You see, the paradox of this passage resolves when we see the difference between divine and human motivations for a king, as we've just been exploring. Israel's motivations were pragmatic and selfish. God's motivations were covenantal and generous. And seeing these motivations entirely resolves this paradox of appointing a king, where it seems bad and good simultaneously. Some motivations behind these things. But attention remains, brothers and sisters, we must see it. Power is good if that power is submitted to God. Kings are righteous if they flex their might in generosity rather than self-gain. But the moment motivations become pragmatic rather than covenantal, the door, a door is open that leads to oppression, bondage, slavery. Look around and see it. So to be crystal clear, I want to be so clear, here's the tension. We need strong leaders so long as they are strongly led by the Lord. We need to be practical without becoming pragmatic. And that is attention. Have you tried it? The implication of this touches on countless elements of our life today, and we hardly have time to go through so many of them, but we will consider one that I think comes rather close to the context of 1 Samuel 8. So much of the modern church is afflicted by the same pragmatic motivations as Israel's elders. How many church elders have effectively decided that God as their king is not enough? A little, something a little more pragmatic is needed. Something a little more attractive is needed. You know what church is infected by pragmatism when it says this? If it only reaches one person, then it's worth it. Wrong. You go to hell with that kind of thinking. Or how about never criticize any method that God is blessing? That was spoken by one of the most prominent Christian leaders in the evangelical world. If we are going to change church so that it's more appealing to unbelievers, and are we not just wanting to be like all the nations that are around us? Like the world? Theologian and author Tim Chalice writes this, Pragmatism is found wherever Christians run to join programs and hurry to change their worship services because of what they expect to see. The emphasis is removed from what Scripture says and where the emphasis is placed on the expected results. Sadly, this means that it is found throughout the evangelical world. God allows 
pragmatic churches, seeker-sensitive churches, even when they have appointed a king of attractional pragmatism. But if we want to be a faithful church, Emmanuel, then we must make the word of God our king and our beating heart. And we must never deviate and we must never be ashamed. It is in all that we do and all that we are. And we want to see Christ magnified and not how awesome we are. And if this world sees us or other churches see us as being foolish or out of touch or strange or backwards, we will not forsake our king. May his word be in our hands and written upon our hearts. So you will look around and you're going to see a thousand other churches with bigger congregations and with more dynamic worship teams and with more exciting preachers with shorter sermons and far nicer facilities. But let us not seek pragmatic methods to join their ranks. Let us be obedient to God practical with our resources, and fight the temptations of pragmatism. God does not always provide immediate results, not how I want them. But when we follow him in the slow, hard work of relational, covenantal obedience, God promises that he will bear fruit, or that we will bear fruit. And how much fruit? 30, 60, 100-fold. Can you imagine? I want to tell you how we can help each other with this because I want to be very practical, not pragmatic. And we need help. I know I am prone towards pragmatism, so I need help. We need to be fast to pray rather than fast to decide. Israel's elders could have used a little bit of that. I think we could. We can saturate ourselves with God's word so that when it comes to decide, we are filled with wisdom from Scripture. If we gain resources that could serve our interests, what if we're ready to just generously give that away? Let us not forget that if we are going to obedient to, if we're going to be obedient to our king, all of us, if we're going to be obedient to the king, then it means that we must unashamedly proclaim the gospel. Not just the pastor, not just the people who seem to have it all together. All of you proclaim the gospel. And in all these ways, we fight against the temptations of pragmatism. In all these ways, we are going to look peculiar to the world, but we will reveal that our king is not of this world. And as we do, let us trust our king, for he says, Behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. Before they call, I will answer. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. Oh, we can live in that. Until this moment, I've intentionally not used the name Jesus. I've been setting the stage. Next week, next week we will see God's anointed. Let's pray. 
Yes, Father, we thank you for your word, ancient as these words are, thousands and thousands of years old, how true they are in this very moment. Thank you that you speak to us through time, pierce our hearts. Yes, may our hearts be pierced. May we, with all that we are, heart, mind, soul, strength, may we love you, our King. Oh God, would you pull our wandering, weary hearts towards you yet again and revive in us a devotion to our Lord. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.